Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK and welcome to, believe it or not, TMR 300 after the summer break uh, for the 14th of our movie roundtables here on the show in which we discuss films and other types of production that have some kind of relevance to themes explored on The Mind Renewed over the last decade or so. And today we're going to be discussing, I think, the, or rather we are going to be discussing the, I think, excellent film, uh, (laughs) 13 Days uh, from the year 2000, which is a historical dramatization, uh, kind of suspense movie of the famous Cuban Missile Crisis that afflicted the JFK administration in 1962 between the 16th and 29th of October of that year, starring... Kevin Costner, Bruce Greenwood, Stephen Culp, and Dylan Baker, amongst many, many others, and directed by Roger Donaldson. And to discuss this movie, we are joined once again by our stellar cultural critics, Frank Johnson in cool California, Mark Campbell in cloudy Crayford, and, as I always say, Anthony Rotuno in a heavily surveilled compound somewhere in the UK. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome back to TMR. Good to speak to you. Hi. Hi. Thanks, Julian. Hey there, Frank. Yep, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I thought we'd lost you there at the last <laughs> minute. Um, okay, so uh, we'll, we'll talk about 13 Days in a moment. I want to catch up first. So uh, how are you all doing? Who wants to go first? Got anything to say? I'm uh, mostly knackered, <laughs> and I don't even have children. So, <laughs> no, I'm uh, quite entrenched in the gig economy this summer. I've got myself some extra work, so uh-huh. I'm still pumping the podcast out. But Great. Energy sapped a bit, but it's nice to be in this group because I feel comfortable and the collective energy of four of us will uh, push us through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good to have you on again, Anthony, and I'm feeling like it as well. So there you go. So, <laughs> um, Frank, how are you doing? I'm good. I uh, had my nude swim this morning. So that's, <laughs> yeah, really, really excited about this movie. Really enjoyed it a lot. But the weather here, we just got missed by a hurricane. Wow. It was like a tropical storm, just gave us some rain. But yeah, overall, everything's all right. Good. When you had your nude swim, did you have a vacuum cleaner with you by any chance? Uh, yeah, that's how I uh, get the water out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll, I'll let everybody into that secret in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> Mark, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm. 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 You caught me on a day when I'm not knackered. Ah, actually. Ooh, nice. You can carry it then. Perhaps because I haven't. I haven't done a day's work for a few months, so uh, perhaps <laughs> that's why I'm not, I'm not knackered. You've done a lot of hospital radio, though. Well, once a week I do my hospital radio, <laughs> and uh, continuing with my question writing for Mastermind, which is always busy at this time of the year, so uh, hmm. that keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we're turning to the movie. I think this film was new to all three of you is that right um i saw it 10 years ago i think i've seen it a few times since i've also thought it's a really good film um initial reactions from many of you uh well my mm. problem is mostly kevin costner uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah. who i don't think he's a terrible actor but he never really stirs much emotions in me and i've seen him in quite a lot of films mm. Um, and then we should talk about the accent, but we can do that. We will do. If yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we've, we've all got some sort of reservations about Kevin Cosner's performance in here. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Mark, initial reactions? Um, yes, I enjoyed it. I don't know how historically accurate it is. 
Um, obviously, it comes over as quite a documentary style film. Mm. So in a in a way, I didn't find it suspenseful because I knew we all survived. <laughs> so it wasn't like I was on the edge of my seat because I knew what happened. Right. Um, I thought it was well done. I I thought it was a bit odd. It sort of kept having black and white bits at the beginning. Mm. No discernible reason. Then they just decided to stop doing that. Mm. That took me out of the film slightly. That's interesting. But I mean, I thought it was a very good film. I love the fact that it's got such a large cast of very well cast characters. I thought that was excellent. So I did Mm. enjoy it and engage me. I think I was comparing it. I shouldn't have done this. Comparing it unfavorably to JFK, the, the film JFK, mm-hmm. which obviously was Costner and the same. Obviously, there was a right. difference because JFK, the character, was in this film rather than mm. dead. Yes, but yes. Um, yeah, I kept thinking about uh, Jim Garrison in JFK as well. So mm. yeah, I had to keep on blanking that out in my mind to try and appreciate him in this yeah. other, this other part. Um, Frank, what was your initial reaction? Yeah, so I, I really liked the film overall. Um, I think like what Mark said, it's kind of hard to have suspense over something you know we all survive, but <laughs> you still do get a little bit of a sense of it and be like, well, what are the details of how he gets out of this kind of thing? And, and that's where I was able to get a little more suspense out of it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought Costner's performance, again, was like, yeah. I, I didn't <laughs> even know that he was portraying like a real person. I thought he had just kind of created this person for himself to be JFK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he a real guy and like um one thing that that i found remarkable was um at the very beginning when they introduced jfk you don't see his face right away and then when they show his face they kind of just linger on it for like a certain amount of time Mm. and like at first i'm like oh this this guy doesn't quite seem right but then as the camera like dwells on him i felt like it kind of they did that so you could just get used to him and so i thought after that initial introduction i thought he did a great job and the guy who did Bobby Kennedy, um, I thought he was really good. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that about the guy who played JFK, because Roger Ebert said something a bit like that. This actor sort of made the character his own. You know, he doesn't necessarily sound exactly like him or look exactly yeah. like him, but he, mm. you believe him. You get to believe him. And, and that works. Mm. I think he did very well. Anyway, we'll get talking about all the details. Yeah, go on, Anthony. Yeah. No, as I say, it's difficult to portray JFK. Yeah. It's like Elvis or Marilyn Monroe or someone like that. Oh, yeah. It's very difficult to capture it because he, he seemed to have real mm. charisma, the, the real person, you know? Mm. So, um, anyway. Okay, well, we will go into you know, a lot more detail about all this in a bit. So, um, I've got here... Um, in the sense that I don't have here a plot summary, which I'm not going to go through, uh, and which Anthony's going to do for us. Uh, not a plot summary, but just a, a reminder of how it all goes. Do you want to do it? I've just got, shall I just bosh through this? It's the bare bones of it. Yeah, that would be good for us, I think, um, yeah. Okay, so this is the real story. Soviet mm. nuclear weapons were installed, requested by Cuba for protection after the Bay of Pigs, mm. which was a failed military landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba in 1961 by Cuban Democratic Revolutionary Front, <laughs> consisting of Cuban exiles who opposed Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution. This was covertly financed and directed by the U.S. government, and then I think at some point later they admitted it. Mm. The U.S. had deployed missiles in Italy and Turkey. Now, we know about Turkey. I didn't realise they Mm. deployed them in Italy. No, no, I didn't know that. Um, JFK announced the presence of the Soviet missiles in Cuba and ordered a blockade of Cuba so no sea traffic could get through. Following a confrontation between the U.S. Navy and a Soviet cargo vessel which changed course, the U.S. dropped small depth charges to try to get the sub to surface. The sub interpreted this as an attack and was too deep underwater to know what was happening. Hmm. The sub was armed with a nuclear torpedo with the strength of the Hiroshima bomb. And I wanted to make the point that um, the nuclear weapons available now 
really make the Hiroshima bomb, you know, look like a, a tea party, really. I mean, it's incredible. And mm. in fact, in 1969, the US was dropping the equivalent of two and a half Hiroshima bombs a week on Vietnam. But that, that was basically it. And then uh, we need to talk later, I guess, about Vasily Arkhipov. Oh, yes, we will do that. Uh, yeah. Apparently that wasn't known when this film was made, right? So it wasn't that they left it out. Yes, I believe that's right. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, he refused the captain's order to take the automatic response and launch the nuclear torpedo. Yeah. And then obviously eventually it was resolved um, after 13 days. All right, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, some uh, basics then to get us going, uh, which we will discuss about more later on. But just a few things here. So the film itself mm. is based on a book which I've got here um, called The Kennedy Tapes by Ernest R. May, and this will be a name familiar to a lot of people, Philip D. Zelikow of the 9-11 Commission fame. And um, this book, 800 pages or so, contains essentially transcripts of secret recordings of the White House meetings. You know, we see those in the film uh, that Kennedy himself made during the crisis but the book has got commentary by the authors as well it's a massive book um and the title of the film comes from another book posthumously published by bobby kennedy uh, which is a kind of um memoir of those 13 days and that's called 13 days and this one's called the kennedy tapes which is what it's, it's based on mm. um so i've got a lot to say about that in a bit um Produced by Armian Bernstein, Peter Almond, and Kevin Costner, who's who's actually in it, uh, who plays Kenny O'Donnell, the special assistant. Uh, directed by Roger Donaldson. Now, this is a, a name I'm not familiar with. Any of you encountered Roger Donaldson before? Yes. Well, interestingly, I've, I looked at his filmography. I'd seen two of his films. Uh-huh. To say they're different is an understatement. The Bounty, which is the third main version of the of the meeting of the Bounty, uh-huh. with Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins, very good. Uh, Nineteen eighty four, it was made, and then uh, four years later, he made Cocktail with uh, Mr. Cruz. Oh, so the Bounty, Cocktail, and Thirteen Days. How about that? It's a good trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite eclectic, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I've recognised some of his films. I don't think I've seen any of them except this one. I've seen, uh, I've seen a bit of Bounty, as it were. I've seen uh, Species for my sins, <laughs> for the horror rather than anything else. Um, Dante's Peak, which is like a disaster film with Pierce Brosnan. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that. <laughs> That's okay, I suppose. And then, as you say, thirteen days. At sort of okay, <laughs> very eclectic. Have you seen Cocktail? Or? I haven't. No. Uh, I think is it really bad? It's a Tom Cruise eighties vehicle. Yeah. Instead of being a instead of being a pilot, he's a barman basically. <laughs> it's I don't one of mind. Those. I don't mind Tom Cruise. It's fine. I quite like Top Gun. I think I know more actually by the writer David Self. Mm. I've seen The Road to Perdition, The Born Identity. Apparently, he wrote that, although it's uncredited. So I've I've read. I don't know why mm. that would be the case. Um, and of course, this and some other things as well. So he's obviously done a lot of high profile stuff. Mm. Um. Music by Trevor Jones. Now, I said to you, Mark, it turns out he wrote the music for The Appointment. Ah, I know. Isn't that <laughs> weird? Yeah, we just, this, this is a, so weird. Would, how would you describe The Appointment? A sort of occult thriller, would you? Oh, <laughs> it's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, I guess mm. so. But even then, it's vaguer than that, isn't it, really? Mm. Um, I did wonder about doing a movie review on that. So it's 1981 starring the great Edward Woodward. Mm. It's a weird mm. sort of, yeah, I don't know what to make of it, uh, but I don't know, with, with a, the, the strangest car crash in the world. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he wrote the music for that, but there we are. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, we happen to be talking about that quite coincidentally. Um, 
Yeah, maybe we will do that one day. I I, I'd like to do it. I think we can eke out some interesting mm. stuff from that. With spooky dogs. And if you listen to yeah. the commentary, the director's commentary, I know we're going off channel here, but uh, mm. the director's commentary on that film does make you realise there's a bit more in, in it, perhaps, than you originally thought. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Well, I thought the music, actually, in this was a lot better than it was in The Appointment. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, this was really nicely yeah. scored and well done, but, uh, yeah, The Appointment, not sure. Mm. Um, I have a little factoid here. Um, there was a docudrama made for TV in 1974, called The Missiles of October, which I've not seen, which has Martin Sheen as Bobby Kennedy. That was actually based on the book 13 Days. I wish I'd seen that, but I saw a DVD of it. It was just too expensive. I'm too miserly to actually buy that one. (laughs) Um, So there we go. Um, As I say, there was no nude swimming. Can I share with you my substitute for this? (laughs) Mm. Uh, There was a deleted scene where Kenny O'Donnell, played by Kevin Costner, goes for an evening walk. And he's on his way to the Catholic Church, which is holding 24-hour confessions, you know. And um, in the actual cut, you see him getting there pretty quickly. But uh, in the original, he passes by a shop window where he sees a vacuum cleaner for sale. And he stares at that for several seconds. And then he walks on again. Um, <laughs> and it's weird because they decided to cut that out because they thought, well, it's just, why is he looking at a vacuum cleaner? You know, the world's about to be blown up and he's just looking at this great deal of a vacuum cleaner in a shop window. But uh, yes. I, uh, I wish they kept it in, strangely. I'm a bit perverse about that. But that's, uh, what do you think it was signifying? Uh, something like the normality of life about to go up in smoke or the yeah. technology for good purposes instead of atom bombs i don't know oh, it didn't yeah. work it didn't work i'm glad that, yeah they really should have got I it quite like that it sounds quite good though. Yeah. i think that would have made yeah. the film yeah. the mundaneness of everyday life and it's like yeah. all that's gonna be meaningless in a couple of days potentially mm. yeah yeah no, no i understand that's the idea that, yeah that, actually that reminds me of a book i read recently called on the beach by neville shoot hmm which is about life in a post-apocalyptic world. They've set off all these nuclear explosions and the radiation is coming to Australia, basically, and it's inevitable everyone's going to die. Mm. Um, and there's a character there who just goes, goes on about buying a pogo stick, <laughs> bizarrely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, the, you know, the dimensions of it, the shape of it, how much it costs, goes to the shop, cost it out and all that. And all the time this thing is gradually coming towards them that they're all going to die. So possibly it's a similar vibe to that. Yeah, but I have to say it doesn't really work. I mean, it, no. perversely, I'd like it to be included because I like surreal things, but I think it would have detracted from the film, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's uh, talk more seriously then about the cast. Okay, this guy, Bruce Greenwood, who played JFK, um, Canadian actor and producer, who lives next door to you, Frank, apparently, mm-hmm. in LA somewhere. He won an award for this uh, of some sort. Um, pretty glittering career, actually. I don't actually remember seeing him before, but looking at his information, he's done all kinds of stuff. But I suppose I might have seen him in iRobot. He was in that. He's done some Batman Bruce Wayne voiceovers, which uh, you might have come across, Frank. No, actually, um, the, most of the Batman voiceovers I've seen were, um, oh, what's his name now? He, he just recently passed, too. It was um, Kevin Conroy. He did the cartoon in the 90s. But the, since him, there's been a bunch of other people doing Batman. Mm. Um, but for my generation, like the definitive Batman voice is Kevin Conroy, for sure. Ah, okay. Unfortunately for your show. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know if any um, of these actors were East Coast? Or, oh, you said he was Canadian, didn't you? Yeah, he's Canadian. Were they all putting on these accents? Or? I don't know whether they all were. Was anyone from there? No, I thought he did 
pretty well. I mean, he, was, he came over really sort of thoughtfully and yeah. morally serious and all that and anguished. And he looks a bit like him, but um, mm. there was a bit that was cut out where he looked really quite like him. But they had to cut it out for continuity reasons, but that's the way it goes. Um, mm. I mean, some good things about it. He walked in a sort of awkward way, sat in awkward ways and things like that because JFK had a spinal condition. That's um, yeah. I mean, one thing I did think was Kennedy's humour didn't come over very much, but then I suppose it was a bit of a humourless situation to be in, so maybe that would have been a, inappropriate anyway. Yeah. I think he did a good job. But from those tapes, I'm always curious with presidents or prime ministers or anyone, if, if there's someone else that seems to be running the show behind them, you know, like uh, with Nixon and Kissinger, I suppose, but... Have you read that book that you were talking about, Julian, the tapes? Yeah, I've dipped into it. As I say, there are about 800 Mm. pages and, Mm. uh, you know, these are the full transcripts. So you can imagine it's pretty tedious to Mm. go through. I just dipped in when there were particular sections in the film where I wanted to check up on how accurate it was. And I've got a feel for that, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm. Yeah. I found an interesting factoid. When JFK did his political science degree, his thesis was about the lessons of appeasement, (laughs) which is interesting. That's right. Related to Hitler, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, because they kept on bringing that up, didn't they? Which they did in reality, um, that his father, Joe Kennedy, had sided with the appeasement policy. Of Chamberlain back in the day. So that was a a thing they could keep on poking JFK with that and kept on saying Munich, you know, um, Mm. implying that he was weak on foreign policy. Mm. So that came over quite well in the film a number of times. Mm. Um, What about Stephen Culp, who played Robert Kennedy? Looks quite like him, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that was a bit of a character choice. I don't know if that was similar to the real Bobby Kennedy, but I think... He was quite energetic and, mm. I don't know, it was a good character. Mm. I don't really know much about Bobby Kennedy, but when you see him on tape, he seems to come across a bit like his brother, like quite measured and not sort of fiery. Mm. And in fact, the real O'Donnell was very fiery, mm. was very combative. Yes, I've read that. Uh, the Kevin Costner character, yeah. yeah. But he toned it down. So I think this film wasn't very successful, actually, commercially, but I thought it was to its credit because, uh, did you say, Mark, earlier, it's a bit documentary they didn't yeah, really go way. for yeah. yeah in a good way yeah, yeah. they didn't go yeah. for too much contrived tension because mm. obviously the, it's tense anyway mm. the situation so I thought that they was its credit yeah I mean I I don't know where the money went I guess mostly on the salaries of all the massive <laughs> cast but yeah. I mean they had some action scenes didn't they out in mm. Cuba sort of flying and I couldn't work out again whether that was some of it was <laughs> criticizing here really bad CGI I don't know but they could have made it far more emotional if you wanted to you could have had you know families huddled around teddies crying and all sorts you could have domestic made it much more domestic and it was kind of good that they didn't they kept it essentially full of rooms of men talking mm. um which yeah. is what it would have been which is what they would have been you know so i thought that was actually quite impressive that the restraint i suppose yeah. of the director and the script yeah definitely mm. yeah the music i don't really i often find this with films i don't necessarily remember the music that doesn't seem like a bad thing because it, no. it just blends in well with the film. Mm. Don't necessarily remember it. But the music was quite understated, was it? It, it, it was, yes. Mm. So I think I would recognise the music if I heard it, but if you wanted to mm. ask me to hum how it goes, I wouldn't have a clue. You know, it was, mm. it was sort of bland, yeah. but recognisable. And I think that's just right, actually. Mm. You don't want it to stand out. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, Kevin Costner, we've got criticisms of him playing this, <laughs> this guy called uh, Kenny O'Donnell, who was a special... He was... A, a real character, a special assistant to the president. Mm. But there's a lot of controversies to whether 
Um, actually, I suppose it is his fault, isn't it, to some extent, because he was one of the producers. Um, whether that was a whether that was an accurate characterization of that person. Mm. Um, for, for example, Robert McNamara actually said, "Oh well, you know, Kenny O'Donnell had nothing to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis." <laughs> And in fact, he said to one of the producers, "Oh, I'm not even going to go and see this because uh, this is this is ridiculous." Um, but then, when he did see it, he, he then said, "Oh, actually, it was a, it was quite a responsible piece of work after all." So mm-hmm. he he had reservations about it, and I think that was largely because Kenny O'Donnell didn't say anything in the meetings. You know, he was told to be this pair of ears. And you see that in the film. He sort of stands at the side, listening carefully. Mm. Then he reports back, mm. you know, to Bobby and, and Jack. So from the perspective of people in the meetings, Kenny didn't have anything to do with it. But he, did, he clearly did have something to do with it. And a lot of people also say that, in fact, it was Ted Sorensen, who was the speechwriter, who was more of the motivator. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, he's a kind of composite character. Was a real person, but not quite true to reality. And one of mm-hmm. one of the scenes that I kind of like because it's so weird is when Kenny O'Donnell speaks to the speechwriter Ted Sorensen. They're, they're both sort of shaving, you know. And, and yeah. Ted Sorensen says how he couldn't write the other speech because the other speech was, you know, possibly leading to nuclear war. And I just thought that's really weird because you've got Kenny O'Donnell, who is kind of a composite, including Ted Sorensen speaking to Ted Sorensen. It's mm. <laughs> okay if you don't mm. know the reality of that, you know. But I think it worked because you had to have somebody, a sort of tour guide, they say. You know, they wanted a tour guide to the events. Mm. You've got to see through somebody's eyes, haven't you? You can't see through JFK's eyes because then that would be pushing an interpretation on everything. Or this is what JFK thought about everything. Yeah. You had to have somebody, <clears throat> even if it's partly fictitious. Mm. Yeah, he's the audience identification figure, if you like, because you start out um, with him and his family and then he goes to work and then yeah. goes from there doesn't it so you have that a lot in films and i don't know if there was anything before or after a caption that came up but often there'll be a caption that says historically accurate but some characters have been created or merged or stuff i think that's just Mm. you have to accept that's part of the shtick really unless you go for a straightforward Mm. documentary with footage of the time yeah you know um (laughs) which which would be pretty tedious yeah well i don't know it's interesting events enough in itself perhaps to still work but wouldn't get as many bums on seats (laughs) that's true it's a strangely oh, uncommercial choice, though, isn't it? Because mm. they take a character, O'Donnell, and beef him up, mm. but then he doesn't play him anything like what no. he actually was like because he was quite combative. And I mean, you could have easily done that. Well, there were there were moments when he was, Anthony. Were there? Mm, I think so. Right. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe it just goes back to Costner again. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the things I thought was, you know, the other two are not so well-known, and everybody knows Costner, and I just thought the very fact that he's so well-known, which is not his fault, was a weakness. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He stood out as, mm-hmm. he's the star, and yet, you know, the other two are historically far more mm-hmm. significant. But you know, what could you do with that? You had to do something like this. It's hard, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because, okay, the film might mm-hmm. have been better without him, but it would never have been made. No. That's a, yeah. That's always the balance with these films, you know? Yeah. You either either get a major star and then the film gets greenlit or else you don't get in as major star and it doesn't ever get made. (laughs) Absolutely. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to knock him because I think he did a good job, except perhaps for this accent, which, you know, Frank, was it? Have we said this on air or not? I can't remember. What what do you think of that Boston? No, we were talking before we started. (laughs) What do you think of his Boston accent? Yeah, I don't know. Accent, Boston accent was really not that good. Um, and I don't know that it's even a hard accent to make necessarily. I, I don't know what he was going for, but I think he was the only one who really tried because I don't, I don't think the JFK actor or Bobby really had too much of an accent either that I can recall. 
And then, yeah. and then, you know, uh -huh. famous for having that kind of Boston accent, you know. Yeah, I mean, I listened to some videos of O'Donnell to try and to hear. It. Was was he tr was he really trying to do that? And I think he was trying to do that. Mm. But when I saw the film, first of all, I just got this impression: oh, yeah, he's trying to do an accent, and it really stands out as trying to do an accent. <laughs> um, That's the yeah. problem. And the thing is that at times his accent slipped. Mm. And when his accent slipped, I, I felt sort of better about it. I hadn't realised it. It was suddenly, oh, he's talking in his normal accent. Right. But it, it's this kind of a, yes, Mr. President. It's like that, you yes. know? Mm. Yeah, sort of a rolling. Yeah, thing. and yeah. I thought if you exaggerate yeah. it anymore, you end up at Catherine Hepburn, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> it reminds me of Michael Gambon. Do you remember in The Insider trying to do an American oh, yeah. accent? He kept on slipping back into English. And I think, well, you might as well just play an Englishman, you know? Yeah. Although that's yeah. historically inaccurate. <laughs> as you say, uh, sometimes it's better to do that and just say, you know, has, we've taken some licenses. Yeah, has anybody seen a film called Has anybody seen a film called The Departed? Martin Scorsese. Yes, yes. yes. The Departed. Yeah. That's uh, Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio, and yeah. I think everybody putting on these Boston accents. But and Jack Nicholson doesn't, though. That's no, no, he doesn't bother. Why should yeah. he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I found that quite hard work because they just seem like everyone is acting. It does take you out of the film if you think, oh, they're putting on an oh. accent. Mm. They might yeah, be the does. greatest actors in the world, but if you think, well, hang on, that's mm. forced. I'm looking at this person acting. It's not good, is it? Mm. That's the yeah. thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, Michael Caine uh, won an Oscar for Cider House Rules, didn't he? That, <laughs> and everyone's going, oh, it's such a brilliant American accent. I'm like, no, it isn't. isn't it? Yeah. it just sounds like Michael Caine pretending to yeah. be a <laughs> <laughs> I knew we'd get Michael Caine in. Well done, Anthony. That's oh, brilliant. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm being overcritical here. I think he did a good job. We're picking a lot here. Um, mm. Anyway, I wanted some special mention. There are too many people to talk about. Um, but for me, I thought uh, a guy called Michael Fairman, who played Adelaide Stevenson II, um, I thought he was really good. I think he's a sort of classy actor, you know, um, who I think looks fairly like him, sounds fairly like him. And that exchange at the UN Security Council, that was pretty historically accurate, actually. Yeah. That was really, really well handled. I really felt like I was watching the real thing there. Um, even the laugh from the audience. Is that the old, that's the old guy. Yeah, with the coma. the old guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and in the film he's made out that he's quite soft and he kind of hardens up, I, which again is a good filmic device, but I don't he, think he was soft in the first place. Right. You know? he, he wasn't, but he was a, he was a victim of, of uh, inter-party propaganda, really. I mean, the, mm. um, apparently the Republicans painted him as, as an sort of aristocratic indecisive sort of intellectual figure so he had that reputation so i think in that situation people were a bit concerned but he brought it off brilliantly um mm. those have not seen it all right he says to the uh, ambassador zorin the ussr ambassador to the un he says um all right so let, let me ask you one simple question do you ambassador zorin deny that the ussr has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in cuba yes or no don't wait for the translation, yes or no. Mm -hmm. and, and there's this mm -hmm. laughter, and that's there on the recording. Um, it raises a laugh in the chamber. Mm. I wondered if that was genuine, but yeah, that was. That was a good yeah. scene. Mm. That was a really great scene. I thought that was really well played. And like, like this was something we kind of really gloss over in school oh. here. And like, just to know that level of detail, like how, how the movie portrayed that was just, uh, I just thought that was really entertaining. Mm. There was something that wasn't accurate, though. Can I tell you? Go on. Mm. The handkerchief in Fairman's pocket poked up a little bit more than it did in reality. I think I'm leaving this chat now. I just, <laughs> no, actually, that's interesting, yeah. that scene, because when he says that, don't wait for the translation, I thought, oh, hang on, that reminds me of something. I don't know if you remember it in Star Trek, 
one of the films, <laughs> The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek Six. I think Kurt must say that to the Vulcan ambassador. Oh no! And it is obviously a direct reference to this. Really? But that's yeah, yeah. Because I mean, The Undiscovered Country is all about detente and, and uh, the uh, Cold War ending and everything like that. And there's this bit where he says, "Don't wait for the translation." Uh, yeah, yeah. That shows you how nerdy that's I am. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting to know. Oh, wow. I never thought it was so weighty. Amazing. <laughs> Actually, no, I got that wrong looking at the transcript now. It's the Klingon guy called Chang <laughs> who says, uh, I know, do you deny you were demoted for these charges, Captain? Don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. And when I saw it, I thought, ooh. It's the Klingon who says it. Yeah, to Kirk, yeah. <laughs> Is that a double joke? Perhaps it is. Yeah. <laughs> in, the Klingon, uh, in the Klingon court because of the for assassinating the Chancellor, yeah. So the Klingon guy asked them, yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. Thanks for including that. That's I didn't right. know we were going to talk about Star Trek with this. That's remarkable. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are there any, any other characters that... Uh, I mean, a familiar face for me was uh, Madison Mason. I didn't know the name, but the face is just... I've seen him so much. And he was the Admiral George Anderson. Uh, the chief of naval operations, who has this face-off with Robert McNamara, right. you know, over the, mm. uh, you know, they've been told not to do any shooting, and but he commands there to be some sort of blank shooting oh, towards yeah. the Russians. Yep. And, and of course, this could start things off, you mm. know, and JFK said, there's been no shooting. Mm. And there's a big argument about that. And when my wife saw this with me, she said, oh, yeah, he's got a face like a smack bum. <laughs> yeah, you're right, he does. Um, yeah, he's re- really crossed, and he feels like he should be in charge and rather than these posh boys telling him what to do. Mm. I thought that was really good. Um, but that's a really clever scene, isn't it? Because, first yes. of all, he says, don't tell me what to do. And the McMurray says, no, no, but you're shooting at them. And he says, star shells. We're shooting star shells over the bows. Right. It's mm. fine. And then you side with with Madison Mason, then he, the other guy comes back, no, no, it doesn't matter what you do. They will get that wrong like I got that wrong. They'll perceive that uh, as being an act of aggression. It's a very clever scene. That you don't know which person to side with because you can see both sides of the argument. I thought it was really brilliant, actually. Mm. It was actually, yes, because that's where McNamara says, look, this is um, communicating with mm. uh, Secretary yeah. Khrushchev, isn't it? This is a new kind of language. Yes. And I like that because that connects with a previous scene where JFK had read a book called The Guns of August, mm. yeah. uh, which was all about the First World War and how, you know, the, the rules of engagement were followed slavishly. And so it ended up in this bloodbath. And, you know, he was thinking, this is what's going to happen with the rules of engagement now. Mm. And this is what Anderson was doing. You know, he was basically using these rules. And McMurray, mm. as you say, was trying to say, look, this is a communication going on here. What do you think you're doing? You know, it was yeah. really well welded together, those scenes. Mm. Have you guys seen The Fog of War with the real McNamara? No. Oh, yeah, I'd recommend documentary, Fog of War. Okay. He pretty much admits about the Gulf of Tonkin. That was one of the things in it. Oh, does he? I'm sure you can find it online, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He survived quite a long time, didn't he? So he had a a lot of opportunity to say things about many of these events over the years. Yeah. I've got to mention Kevin Conway as General Curtis LeMay. Mm. The famous mm. LeMay. Um, doesn't really look much like mm. him, but I kind of believed him. He had various names. Old Iron Pants, <laughs> the Demon, Bombs Away LeMay. He was known as the Big Cigar. Yeah. I think the, um, not to talk about Dr. Strangelove again, but I think the Sterling Hayden character was somewhat based on him. Yes, mm. that's right. The mad uh, general, yeah. yeah. We've talked about before, haven't we, Anthony? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, watching that, I was thinking, is this really a bit of a cliche, this guy? But I guess you're saying this, that's how he behaved in real life then. I, I think suppose. in real life he was a bit of a cliche, yeah. Mm. He was one of those yes. people, quite cartoony in real life, you know. Mm. 
Well, I've mm. seen some interviews with him, and he's very bland, but he clearly had some very extreme ideas. Mm -hmm. So he may not have come over quite so wild-eyed as he did in the film. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm not convinced that he was sane, really. I mean, he was a really important, celebrated hero. You know, he'd been in charge of the massive bombings of Japan mm -hmm. in World War II, including, of course, the nuclear drops. Mm. But, you know, his attitude was, generally speaking, was, you know, if it's red, bomb it. Absolutely. Uh, which is not the kind of person you want in this situation, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, talking of that, I thought the film tried to make a big point. I'm not saying this is not true, that the politicians were pretty reasonable. So you had that tension with the, is it the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Yeah. Is that what they're called? Yep, that's right. Yep. But they were very gung-ho and the politicians all seemed very reasonable. I'm not saying they weren't, but hmm. um, did you feel like that? I did, and I, I think okay. that's pretty much true to the situation, which is not to say mm. that you know all the Joint Chiefs of Staff were like that. I mean, certainly Maxwell Taylor, who was, mm. well, he was nominally the head. I think, in fact, LeMay was, you know, de facto. But um, uh, Maxwell Taylor had this difficult position of representing what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were saying to the Kennedy administration, and then <laughs> representing what the Kennedy administration said back to Joint Chiefs of Staff. He had a very mm. difficult situation, and he wasn't nearly so extreme as far as I can pick up. But, you know, there's a huge tension between the two camps, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and other Joint Chiefs of Staff, are they all, who are they generally? I, I always hear about them and they always seem very gung-ho, like through the years, you know, I think it's continued. I can't I can't name them all. I, uh, I know that they were responsible for, for Northwoods, yeah. Operation Northwoods, which didn't come up in the film. Same year, wasn't that it? Was, yeah, that's right, wasn't it? 62. Yeah, yeah. And that was that came to knowledge in 1997 because of the work of the Assassination Record Review, Review Board. So, yeah, that could have been included in the film. But then this will have had CIA clearance, won't it? As indeed the Kennedy Tapes book itself mm. has CIA clearance. They actually acknowledge the CIA in this. <laughs> mm. um, and, of course, we know that both May and Zelikoff worked on the 9-11 Commission. So, you know, it's it's vetted. Um, yeah, if the, there's a line that came up, if the sun comes up tomorrow, it's because of reasonable men. I can't remember who said it, but I just wrote it down. Mm. And it reminded me, I don't know if you saw the Ken Burns 10-part series on Vietnam, ah, which, yeah. which had its virtues. Mm. Yeah, but the very first line is, the Vietnam War was started by good men with good intentions. You're like, mm, not sure about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking during the film, like, to be in this situation, there must be a few people who aren't that reasonable, you know. Mm -hmm. to, to kind of piggyback on that scene, I thought it was very interesting when he's having those meetings. And you could very clearly see, like, the uh, military-industrial complex pushing to try to get it to war. Like, it didn't come out, like, the film didn't mm -hmm. beat you over the head with it. But, like, if you really look at it very closely, you kind of get the feeling that you, you're not sure if they're trying to push him to war and escalation mm. with conflict to the Soviet Union, you get that sense, but you're, you're also just not sure because the military guys play it as though they're trying to give him sound advice when really it sounds like they're trying to push him to war. So you're trying to, like, it sounds like it, but you're not sure. Very reminiscent of, you know, Eisenhower's Beware of the Military Industrial Complex. Mm. And I, I don't want to make too much of a parallel, but with certain aspects of Trump's administration, like they yeah. were against him because like he didn't want to go to war like you know john bolton type of situation going to war with iraq yeah um that's what it reminded me of is kind of interesting in that regard yeah yeah it seems to me that that tension has been there since then as well yeah. from what i know of the president on one hand i mean when a new president comes in 
Mm. Bill Hicks used to do that joke about the new president meeting the military industrial complex. (laughs) (laughs) You know that old story they're showing? This is not true, obviously, but they're showing a view you've never seen of the Zapruder film. And then they turn the film off and say, any questions? It's that kind of thing. (laughs) That brings up an interesting point because Jacob Hornberger, who I spoke to just before the summer, hopefully we're speaking to him again on one of these topics, I hope, will be the uh, true version of a Zapruder film. So it may well be that that was tampered with and the version we know may not be quite like the original. So maybe Bill Hicks had something there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now, believe it or not, uh, this film was going to start off as a love story. Mm. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) They were going to have a love story. Between uh, between Curtis LeMay and War. They didn't go into any detail about it, but they said that, you know, the idea was to have this love story against the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mm. and they quickly shelved that. Mm. They realised, no, we've got to tell the story itself, you know, you don't need some artificial thing. Maybe they've been watching Titanic. (laughs) I was going to say, I was going to say that was the Titanic pitch, wasn't it? The story itself, that's not good enough. Let's have a love story. Yeah, yeah. because Kate and Leo managed to have some steamy action before the boat (laughs) sank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I have to say, I can't bear. I did see it. I couldn't bear it because of that. Well, actually, also for the fact that she ended up in the water and implausibly lasted in the water far too long. (laughs) Apart from that. Oh, I didn't mind that. I did did the fact that she's on this great big thing the size of a grand piano, and he tries to get up one. Sorry, spoilers, and he doesn't manage it, so he doesn't try again. He just there's plenty of room. Just do it again slowly, and you'll get up, Leonardo. You'll be fine. Um, however, I do love the film. I'm sorry. So, I, I mm. think so. oh, do you? Yes, oh. I'm so sorry. No, sorry. I had to say sorry to my grandmother because she loved it as well, and I had to say to her, I, <laughs> I didn't like that. There we okay. go. Um, what do you think of their decision not to? give the Cuban and Russian perspectives. You know, it could have been like suddenly seeing inside the Kremlin and subtitles and all that. What what do you think of the decision not to do that kind of thing? I think if it's an American film, you're going to get the American Mm. perspective. I don't think that's such a terrible thing. But I was actually going to ask the group, how do you think the Russians were portrayed? Because there was one line, who said this line, something about the Soviet understands only one language, action, respects only one word, force. Uh, yeah. Is that everyone in Russia? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's one of those. I can't remember who said that now. Uh, um, no, it's it's a member of the military, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's one of the joint chiefs, in fact, yes. I can't remember which character. Okay. Yeah. Well, they said that they did this partly because, in reality, it wasn't known what Khrushchev was thinking as things were developing. They were trying to guess what these messages meant. And mm. if you'd known, as the audience, if you'd known what the decisions were, the other side of the world, then, you know, there would have been no tension. And I think maybe they're right about that. Mm. Yeah. Although I'm so used to seeing the the enemy, as it were, with the subtitles, I'd kind of miss it, but I think they made a right decision there myself. But then again, the Arkhipov story, which, did, have we mentioned that on air? can't remember now. Maybe right at the beginning, I just mentioned his name, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about this, Anthony, this Arkhipov story, because this was not actually known at the time of the making of the film. Had it been known, they may have felt they had to include it, and that might have destroyed that philosophy. But go on, tell us about this Vasily Arkhipov character. Yeah, well, I was saying earlier about the official story. So um, the US dropped the depth charges to try and get this submarine to surface. The submarine interpreted it as an attack. Yeah. And was armed with a nuclear torpedo, as we said. And Vasily yeah. Arkhipov was executive officer of Soviet submarine B-59, refused the captain's order to take the automatic response. So there are, you know, I mean, there was a, a thing many years ago on, on RT, Russian Today, and you could say, all right, they're going to say that, aren't they? 
But, you know, people do call him the man who, who saved the world. Mm. And I think had that been known, yeah. that would have been really interesting to see whether they would have included that, you know? Mm. I think they'd have had to, wouldn't they? Yeah. Well, unless the CIA said you can't, but... Uh... Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard, there yes, was I've this heard, guy, wasn't there, the command... You have heard it. No, no, I just no. I've heard that story. Right, sorry, cool. Yeah, yeah. I didn't remember the name, but now you tell the story. And yes, yes, it's something I have heard. Extraordinary. It is extraordinary. So, just to clarify, that the commander gave the command, mm. and then there were two sub commanders who had to agree for it actually to happen. And one said yes, yeah. and this guy said no. So we do have him to thank <laughs> that individual. We couldn't do this podcast without him. We couldn't. <laughs> no, well, indeed, yes, that's yeah. true. Frank, I've got a question for you. You there, Frank? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, <laughs> you disappeared very far down that tunnel, Frank. <laughs> Come back. Yes, secret Nephilim base. <laughs> no, no, it's not the new year yet, Frank. Yeah, sorry. Wrong show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, because of your extensive knowledge of the inside of the White House, mm. I wonder if you could tell us how accurate you thought the sets were, because it wasn't the actual... Oval Office and Cabinet Room and all that. What, what do you reckon? Did they do a good job? Was, was it like that last time you were there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've actually never <laughs> been there, but um, I, I've seen the White House in person, like from far away, but never actually went inside. Um, oh. It did the job. It looked real enough for me. Yeah. Nothing jumped out at me. Yeah. Really. yeah. Well, I scrutinized one picture and it looked pretty good to me, but you know, <laughs> that's all I know. I had to trust what they said. They said they went to a huge amount of effort to try and make it look like the real thing. Oh. They seem to have gone to a lot of effort for that sort of thing generally i've been inside the pentagon oh have you mm. oh wow but i went to america in 1990 i went to washington and i caught the tube to the pentagon station i went up the escalator to the top i just remember it as being a corridor with a like a checkpoint i went to the top and said oh okay and then went back down the escalator again so i came up inside the building gosh i say i know, I know. but you didn't get to the white house what a shame i saw <laughs> it from the outside but not inside no Oh, yeah, I got a note about these black and white sections, Mark. Yeah. It's rather strange, isn't it? As you say, towards the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's not as if yeah. they're a newsreel and then they're a... I thought it would be like a public bit and the no. private bit, but they don't even seem to correspond to that. Yeah, I was a bit bemused the first time I saw this, and they say they did it just to try to give the impression, you know, to remind people of these old photographs that were taken that were in Life magazine and things like that. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> I think it worked. Not sure it fully no. worked. No, no. It was a, a nice try, but yeah, maybe it didn't. Mm. I thought what did work was the use, using actual footage of things like ships and aircraft. And mm. so, that, mm. you know, when Kennedy was giving that big speech on TV, they used mm. real clips and colorized the audience and things like that. That worked, I thought. Mm. But, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> the camera work, I thought, was really good. In the center of the crisis, you got lots of really, really short shots of people's faces mm. looking and, and reacting and all in character. Mm. I was really impressed by that, actually. And there was a really weird moment where it went from that to a ship where an order had been given. And then you see the blank expression of a sailor barking orders. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> you know, how you got real people making decisions and then just a functionary being given orders. And yeah. that was you know, weirdly chilling to see that contrast. Mm. I mean, I thought it was good in a way that there weren't any huge, great directorial tricks. Mm. It, was, mm. it was simply get a load of good actors in and a good script, and just film it. You know, they didn't need to be tricksy. 
Hmm. And I've watched, while we've been discussing, I've watched the deleted scene with him looking at the vacuum cleaner. It's only about five seconds, isn't it? But I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. a bit odd. It is a bit odd. I was thinking, does that vacuum cleaner look like a, an atomic bomb or something? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't it was think odd. so. Yeah. Could have had a montage of him using benevolent technology. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Toasters, washing Toasters, machines. Yes. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll come back to this Kennedy tapes thing. I mean, they did use this for sure, and they do use some verbatim quotes, but there's just no way they could reproduce what was in here. So they had to miss stuff out. They had to compress dialogue and, Mm. you know, order things in terms of themes. And you, you get some things happening on the wrong day and in the wrong room, but... You know, I don't see how else they could have done it. Otherwise, you'd be flipping from room to room trying to put things in the right context. It would have been, you know, you'd you'd get vertigo watching it. So I realised they had to do that. Um, There was one, I don't know what you thought. Um, This was when General LeMay addresses Mr. President and says, you're in a pretty bad fix, Mr. President. Mm. And then JFK, he's got his back to him, doesn't he? And he turns very melodramatically mm. and says, what did you say? Mm-hmm. You're in a pretty bad fix. And then, and then JFK says, well, maybe you haven't noticed, but you're in it with me. You mm. know? And actually, when you listen to the tape, JFK responds like this. It's like, um, you're in it with me. Ha ha. Personally. You know, you can hardly hear it. It's sort of jokey. It's almost awkward. And then the conversation just goes straight on. And LeMay is unfazed by this completely. Whereas in the film, he's like, he's looking all sort of, oh, I've been shot down here in the conversation. Mm. So they had to make a big thing of that. I guess that was the right thing to do, but that was not. It was kind of historical and not historical at the same time, you see what I mean? Yeah, there weren't too many of those cheesy lines, though. It was good. (laughs) There's always a tension, isn't there? Anything like this. It's a big Hollywood film, but also it's bad in historical events that are pretty well documented. So, Mm. you know, if if they stick too much to the documentary style, they might be accused of, well, why even call it? Mm. Is it fictional fact? What is it? I mean, it's fact. So just make make a documentary. Don't bother to get actors. Mm. There's always a tension, (laughs) I think, in bringing the story to a wider public, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is what yeah, they have doing. to do. It. Yeah. And then if you've got questions, you go to the sources, don't you? Mm. And see if it's true. Yeah. Going to the sources, the really weird thing about this Kennedy tapes book is that at that particular moment, where Kennedy clearly does, when you listen to the audio, he does say, you're in it with me, ha 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 ha, personally. Yeah. But they write, um, quote, Kennedy makes an unclear joking reply. I mean, it's, it's absolutely obvious. So they claim to have done all this work, but they didn't pick up on that. I picked up on it. And so did other people. So it's really odd. They also had a forensic analyst to help them. So I don't know. They, had, they had an off day that day, or one of the most important bits of the whole thing. Can I, can mm. I ask a question of the group, actually? Mm. Um, mm. Does this film have a focus? And if so, what is it or who is it? Is the focus of the film Kennedy? Or is it Costner? Or is it the, the situation itself? You know, you mentioned the bit with Kennedy saying that dramatic drum roll line. Well, that implies the focus is really it's he's the centre of the film and it's about him and his reaction. Myself, I feel it's more the event itself. That's what I took away from it. It's the event of the missile crisis is the central focus of the film and like trying to get out of it and navigate through it. It's difficult, isn't it? Because they had to glamorise Kennedy, I think, Mm. which they did. But what else could they do? Um, so in in that sense, he does become a focus of equal weight to the situation itself. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just that little quip, uh-huh, you're in it too. That's the real Kennedy, almost making a joke of the situation, mm. whereas they turned it into this superhero. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it wouldn't have worked otherwise. You'd yeah. think, oh, what, is that mm. how Kennedy reacted? Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's one thing that I did miss. I, I wish that we'd have seen Kennedy flicking a switch. It's a small point. 
Oh. But underneath his desk or something, because he had a switch in there to turn the recording on. And it would have been nice for us all to know that these were really recordings mm. that were taken secretly. You had to manually switch a switch on Excellent. to take these reel-to-reel tapes. I thought you were talking about oh. the nuclear switch, Julian. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice to see him press the button. That's a red button. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mind if I just humorise this with the Yes Minister very quickly? Oh, yes, on. Prime Minister. Yep. So that's an episode where uh, they're talking about the nuclear button, and it's the same scientist who was in a very British coup. Do you remember? Oh yeah, yeah. He was a right. nuclear scientist in that. And in the same episode, uh, they've just moved in because he's just become prime minister, and they're talking about um, ordering dinner or something because he hasn't eaten all day. And there's something about oh, they're not allowed to order dinner. And so Jim Hacker says, oh, I can't believe this. So I've got the power to blow up the world, but I haven't got the power to order mm. scrambled eggs. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you had to get it in there, Anthony. I did. Yes. Somehow or other. <laughs> and of course, to get the other yeah. Star Trek uh, mentioned in, of course, Bruce Greenwood oh. played Captain Pike oh, yeah. in the Star Trek films. There are three recent films, the supposed Kelvin timeline, so they're sort of alternate history Star Trek, and he plays Captain Pike in those films. Oh, right. Um, Sort of true hero. And it's like they're trying to make Kennedy this sort of Captain figurehead heroic. They are. You know, as you say, glamorising him a bit. Um, It's tricky, isn't it? Because three out of four of us aren't American, so... (laughs) Frank, what is Kennedy still held up as a, a hero in America? I think so. Yeah. I grew up in the 80s and 90s and became an adult in the 2000s. And it wasn't really talked about a lot. But you could tell like when I asked my grandma about Kennedy, like people from that generation, like kind of hold him in a high regard. And I think especially the last couple of years, especially since Trump was in office, um, I think people have gone back and kind of elevated Mm. Kennedy to higher regard than ever he was before. Like, Mm. I think some of this, too, was it's not just the Trump administration, because there was a book um, Jesse Ventura did on his conspiracy theory thing a while back called They Killed Our President. So like you had this mythology starting in the early 2000s, I think, where Kennedy was like, and I don't know if this is really true or not. It, I feel like it might have some truth to it, where like he was like the last populist president we had and they killed yeah. him. I think with the documents that were recently <laughs> supposed to be declassified, right. we kind of get the sense that, yeah, they, our own government did it, you know, who in there? I don't know, but like we're kind of giving this um, not quite a mythology, but kind of like this sense that he was the last president that the people actually mm. and because he wouldn't play ball the way they wanted. They got rid of yeah. him. And- mm. This is yeah, really it, interesting. It I is a mythology. Just to say it is a mythology, but it's mm. a myths are true, aren't they? You know, <laughs> something mm. can be mythologized yeah. and built up, but there's a, an essence yeah. of truth there. There's yeah. some level of truth to it, I think, but I, mm. I think it has been seen through rose colored glasses and mythologized yeah. and, um, I, yeah. I, I yeah. do think that since Kennedy, that we we are uh, when you mentioned about the military industrial complex, the president comes and meets them every time. Oh, I, I think after JFK, that's never really been an issue because they've just installed one of the two people they wanted in there anyway. So. <laughs> right, uh, right. Yeah, I did notice that we didn't get any mention, you know, of napalm, or we didn't get any mention of Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. There is some criticism of Bobby Kennedy for CIA campaigns in Cuba and stuff, but. It's very fleeting. Yeah. Um, and, and nothing about, you know... Sort of makes it, sorry, go on. Oh, sorry, um, I was going to say, in this movie, sort of like when they mentioned the Bay of Pigs thing, mm. you kind of get the sense that JFK and Bobby did that. You know, they thought the military industrial was like giving them sound advice and like a sound course of action. And it turns out they were just trying to manipulate them into a war. Yeah. That's the sense I got from this movie. Sure. Anyway. Well, that's mm. that's true, isn't it? <laughs> that, that, that was, in fact, the case. Well, it just, is. Yeah. So... See, I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on JFK yeah. in general, there's furious debates now. Some people think he was a dove and some people think, oh, actually, he was a real hawk. Yeah. And I listened to this debate between two guys who seemed to know what they were talking about and they didn't reach an agreement and they never were, but it was really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. There's a real split nowadays. A lot of people say, no, Kennedy wasn't a dove at all. Yeah. Got that completely wrong. I know. This is following, I think Chomsky's had a lot of influence in that. Definitely Chomsky, yeah. Because yeah. he said he invaded, he said uh, Kennedy invaded South Vietnam in 62 or 63. Right. Well, he, he wrote a book called and, Reinventing uh, Camelot and he's very scathing, really, about that's Kennedy. It. But I think, I, well, I'm no expert, but I tend to go with James Douglas on this, that, you know, he was a war hawk, but the experiences that he had made him realise that, you know, he had to move towards peace, otherwise the world was coming to an end, you know? So Mm, he wasn't perfect, but he was a man who had to make decisions and he had a good side and he turned towards the good side, you know, which is not to say he was a saint and it's it's clear he wasn't a saint. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a real human being. Um, Mm. Yeah, I think they were the right team for the moment. I think that's clear. I mean, I can't quite imagine... You know, well, they just got in by the skin of their teeth, didn't they, against Nixon? Mm. You know, had Nixon been in, mm. would he have held up against his chiefs? And mm. what about LBJ, the successor, of course? Um, would he have held up? I'm not so convinced. I think these were the, the right people mm. for the time, in spite of all their faults. And I, I think honestly, um, LBJ was probably part of the military-industrial complex. Right. <laughs> yeah. I get that impression. Eventually, like, oh. scared with whoever to get rid of JFK. That's my gut feeling on that, but, yeah. Mm. So I don't think he would have held up as well, certainly. <laughs> I discovered that O'Donnell, the Kevin Costner character, was Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager in 68. Oh. Yeah. And I don't know if he was there when he was killed. And then he died at 53, I think. Yeah, that's right. He became an alcoholic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, so all three of them died pretty young. Yeah. That's it, yeah. I thought another interesting thing was, on the one hand, they've got to hold the press off, haven't they? Mm. And not give them too much information. Mm. And then they've got mm. to avoid scaring the public. So that was a good tension. Yeah. Well, not good, not good tension, but good for a film. Yeah. How much do you let the press know and how much do you let the public know? Mm. In some ways, maybe the public are the last to know, aren't they? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did that thing about him having a cold was quite good, wasn't it? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. He had to go to some, I don't know, some sort of public event somewhere and the, he decided to do that, didn't he? To keep things normal. Yeah, but he didn't wear a hat. Oh, did he? Didn't wear a hat. In real life, he never wore a hat. So if there was something going on, he would wear a hat. Uh, so I think in real life, apparently, they said he had a cold and he wore a hat. Right. And that alerted the people who might know, oh, there's something. Oh, that's something. He doesn't usually wear a hat. <laughs> they didn't do that in the film. <laughs> that's, well, that's quite eerie, actually, because I, I, yeah. I saw this documentary years ago about the day he died, but it, it looked at the whole day. And there's footage of him earlier in the day. He's obviously in Texas and he gives a speech and they offer him a cowboy hat. And he says, I'll, I'll put this on later. So that was weird. <laughs> yeah. So on the same day that he died, he refused to put a hat on. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, weird, isn't it? Huh, talking about the press, do you remember the Ortsack moment? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the press guy comes up to O'Donnell and says, there's something, yeah. all these exercises going on. Is this something to do with Castro? Because this is Ortsack, <laughs> yeah. apparently. That was real, wasn't it? Yeah, but I said to my wife when watching, I said, there's no way that they would have had such a lame title for it. That's made up. And it was right. Is that a double bluff, do you reckon? Because I, I just thought about it afterwards. I thought, well, I reacted thinking, oh, that can't be right. Did they do that deliberately to make people think, oh, there's no way that can be right? Yeah, Maybe it was actually mean. quite clever and not stupid after all. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> One step ahead. Yeah. Talking of Castro, Kevin Costner was on some ambassadorial, I don't know what his role was, but about a year after this came out, he watched it with Castro in Cuba. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. 
Castro really liked yeah. it. But... <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Um, what about um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of end this off? Any sort of themes, lessons to learn, as it were, from this? Um, I wanted to kick off with, you know, having talked about the assassination a little bit with Jacob Hornberger, and hopefully a little bit more in future. Obviously, this film didn't touch that. I reckon it wouldn't have happened, you know, if they included suspicions about that. But it, it clearly is consistent with the notion that Candy was murdered by military industrial complex, if we use that term, um, because Candy was not moving in the right direction. It's consistent with that, clearly. Um, but I, I did think there were a, maybe at the end, was that the slightest suggestion with them sort of fading into the background with shadows on the wall and Kennedy's famous peace speech? I don't know. Did anybody else pick up on anything that might have been indicative of foreshadowing the assassination? No, yeah, not no, massively, but there no. was something to it. When was, do you know when that speech was given? 63, early 63, was it? Early 63, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there is a famous speech where he warns about secret hmm. societies. It's not that one, though, is it? I don't remember when that was. Yeah, I think that one's often taken out of context as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. James Corbett did a thing on that. Which, the alternative uh, crowd take that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, especially yeah. now with the mythology I've been mentioning, like people will pull that one clip and be like... See, he called out the secret societies and then they killed him. Like, so I, I guess it'd be yeah, to hear yeah. that whole speech he gave. Yeah, it's. I think even the Eisenhower military industrial complex, I think I have heard a few more minutes of that. And it's not that he didn't warn against it, that, that thing's true. But I think, again, the alternative crowd would probably might hold Eisenhower up as the first truther, you know. Yeah. I don't think it was quite like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> No, he was warning about, he already knew it existed. He was warning about where it might go. Yes. <laughs> you know, becoming even more burdensome in the future, not saying, oh, you know, this is a conspiracy that could happen in the future. And it was already there. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. There was one thing with LeMay coming out saying something like, oh, you know, these Kennedys are going to ruin the country unless we do something about this. Mm. He doesn't say, like, we, unless we do something about them. He yeah. we do something about this. Yeah. So I, I do think maybe that was possibly ambiguous to suggest something like we've got to get rid of them. I don't know. But that's no, I think you're right. Maybe I, mean, not, maybe I, think, uh, I think the script is intentional to drop hints, isn't it? But no more than that. Mm. That's yeah. what they could do, perhaps. <laughs> I think a lot of people didn't like them. I mean, I don't think LBJ liked them particularly. Oh, no. They hated each other, apparently. Yeah, yeah. it seems like it, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they were just too... JFK was, in a funny way, too good-looking or charismatic or, you know? Mm. Maybe people were mm. jealous of him. I don't know. Yeah, yeah rich yeah. boy. I, Harvard boy. <laughs> Rich as well, yeah, obviously yeah. the hard I mean, LBJ was bored on board, wasn't he, for the South? They wanted the Deep South, which was not necessarily their, mm -hmm. their natural constituency, mm -hmm. you know? Julian, are you going to do some more stuff about JFK this year? I hope to. Because it's yeah. the anniversary. Yeah, I hope to do that. Yeah. I hope to do something on the autopsy and the Zapruder film, mm -hmm. if Jacob will come back on. <laughs> He's a great guest. It's really, really interesting. Maybe the Oliver Stone film's a bit much, isn't it? It's just because it's three hours. It's Maybe. so much in there. Maybe, yeah. yeah. It's a shame this is, what did you say, the 14th film part? podcast and it's 13 days shame you couldn't quite synchronize that oh what a shame i know so it is yep. <laughs> <laughs> we could say very british coup was kind of a tv series <laughs> uh yes oh yeah that's the way to do it that's the way to do it, <laughs> yeah. To yep. do it. Yeah. yeah um yeah i wanted to say what about this idea of the uh you know playing into the idea of the president as superhero the great leader or the great leadership team in this case i suppose hmm. they will save us and i, I you know I, I do think looking at that historical situation as I said before, they're the right people for it. Yeah, okay, they were good men uh, in this context. Um, 
And we've got so much about this, you know, if, if only Trump will come back or RFK Jr. or people sometimes look at, not, not obviously President of the United States, but, you know, Elon. Elon's, you know, going to save us all on the uh, social media thing. And again, it's okay. I would vote for RFK Jr., you know, um, if I were in that position and he were, you know, actually standing for president, you know. But at the end of the day, I don't buy the idea that any one person or one team is going to save us, you know? Mm. One team could be better than another team, for sure. And we could certainly do with a new Team Kennedy rather than a you know, Team Biden, given the Ukraine and the potential parallels with the Cuban Missile Crisis right now. And I hope they come in. But it does play into that idea of, oh, we've got to find the person mm. who's going to save us, doesn't it, a bit? Mm. Well, yeah, mm. again, the, some of the conspiracy uh, people, they, they say this, that the rise of Marvel... Because a lot of people do think everything is preordained, which I don't think. But, no, you know, no. everything is planned years and years in advance. But mm. uh, they were just saying, that, you know, as you said, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. Then you've got Marvel. Right. And it all seems to mm. – and celebrities, of course. Celebrity culture just gets bigger and bigger. And, it's yeah, it's the idea that conditioning us or whatever the, whatever the word is, mm. you know, to accept these superheroes. It's even more that thing that there's always got to be people that are – better than you, you know, better that's than right you. that's right and if it, mm. if you're thinking that yourself then you're not thinking what can i do aren't mm. you so much mm. it seems to me you're rooting for someone else to save us mm. it seems with all these issues you know it's what we do isn't it you know the stand that we take against whatever it is war or mm. the loss of rights of fundamental freedoms etc we've got to stand up for those ourselves i would say of course with god's help Mm. Um, and empowerment but you know if we just say well if i vote for the right guy that'll be it you mm. know that he'll do it or she'll do it mm. it's yeah. this played a bit into that and it kind of couldn't avoid that but yeah that was a kind of structural weakness i think with it mm. yeah. um well i think i wonder whether we are learning that's the thing about history i'm, I'm quite a history buff <laughs> i'm getting more and more so actually mm. do we learn or do we you know yeah. i think the thing that what you said earlier about jfk quoting the world war one mm. what was the name of that Oh, the guns. guns of August. Guns of August, yeah. Yeah. Just reiterating what I said earlier, this tension between the Joint Chiefs and the President, that's carried on. And I thought it's the interesting tension between them, the politicians, the press and the public. Mm. I thought that was all interesting. I don't know if I've learned that, but maybe it's just reiterate what I thought that it's just carried on, you know. Mm. No, I must odd, say I, I like this film. I like this film more having talked about it with you guys. So mm-hmm. that's <laughs> actually t- talking about the history. Theater, there's one thing I do want to mention. I talked about you know the Adlai Stevenson there at the UN Security Council, and that was a great scene, great moment, and all that. And it really did happen. And yet, I did think afterwards, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if he was lying, and they didn't have any surveillance or whatever. Because what Adlai Stevenson did was theatre at that moment. You know, it was the theatre of it that that won the day. And it happened to be true. Mm-hmm. But actually, it would still have worked, even if they'd been lying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a kind of John Wayne moment from him, wasn't it? You know, I'm willing to wait till hell freezes over. And, all, and the sheer performance of that yeah. made it work. And I, I thought, there's so much that happens that is theatre now. I wonder whether yeah. events like that have actually, yeah. you know, they learnt how to do this, you know. Yeah. Um, but I'm not criticising that particular moment because that was real. You know, they did, in fact, have the truth on their side in that case. I mean, politics is theatre. It always has been, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's got worse. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah totally. Do you know Frank Zappa's quote about that? No. 
Politics is the entertainment arm of the military-industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's killer. That's I love wonderful. That. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened with Colin Powell uh, getting us into Iraq. Is he, he, oh, he did yeah. something that he used as a false pretense to get us into Iraq? So, oh, that's right. At the UN, he had a little vial, didn't he? A little tube of supposed anthrax. Yeah, he had a whole presentation, and then like that was used as our justification oh. to go in, and then it ended up yeah. being fake. And nobody was ever held yeah. accountable for that. that yeah, it's very, around, so. it's very interesting. Right. I was listening to this podcast that I was talking about earlier. It's called History by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I definitely recommend it. But it's interesting when you get these mainstream podcasts, how kind of softball they are and how, how they don't put two things together. And they were actually talking about Colin Powell, Colin Powell, Colin, isn't it, in America? Colin, yeah. Took inspiration. Yeah. I think it was from Adelaide, Adelaide Stevenson. <laughs> and they don't say, yeah, but that was all based on lies. It's really interesting how there's, there is a kind of mainstream mentality, but they don't go a bit further. You know, it's all quite innocent, isn't it? Hmm. It was just interesting that they brought that up. They just said, oh, Colin Powell took inspiration, yeah, to completely lie. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, well, I still love the film. Um, obviously, it's got the weaknesses that we've talked about, and kind of necessary weaknesses to bring such a thing off, I think. Um, mm. But yeah, I think every time I see it, I will still enjoy it. And I've learned quite a lot looking at this. Um, and it, as I said before, it is really quite close to these Kennedy tape documents. But it, reading this, it absolutely turns you to sleep because it's all in detail. Mm. Um, so they couldn't possibly do that. Um, so as we said many times, fantastic performances, uh, well-directed and well put together, but uh, they had to take some yeah. significant artistic license. Uh, uh, one of my favourite uh, scenes was that actually, you know, the one with the sparrows hitting the uh, <laughs> hitting the wing. Mm. Uh, yeah, He was whisked off afterwards to go and speak to the Pentagon, but um, yeah, the sparrows thing didn't happen apparently. So how did they, what did they do in real life uh, to explain away the holes in the wing? It didn't happen. They weren't shot at at all. Oh, the, the whole thing didn't happen. Right. Okay. No, it did happen. They did actually fly really low getting more photographs. And the yeah. Cubans were apparently down there scrabbling together to try and get to the guns. And they didn't get there in time. So they. I, must they, admit, I did think, I didn't know that wasn't fake, but I did remember thinking... Gosh, they've got to go quick. Those planes are moving very fast. Yes. So yes. it's actually yes. now you say it's no surprise that actually they didn't actually fire on them. No, it was more like oh heck, they're coming. Oh, oh they're gone. You know, it was, yeah, it was yeah, more yeah. like that. They're gone, yeah. But it was a great moment. That whole thing of Kenny phoning up this guy and saying, "Look, don't get shot at." You know, I loved all that, mm. and then getting shot at, and then having to say to the other guys, "Yeah, look, the official line is this is sparrows." You know what? Thirty mm. millimeter sparrows. And, <laughs> yes, this is sparrows. <laughs> then he apparently was actually whisked off, still in uniform, to go and speak to the Joint Chiefs on was grilled. Mm. But yeah, he didn't have to uh, hide anything. Mm. You just reminded me of one part of the movie that I never knew happened in real life. Um, remember, there was one of the pilots who actually got shot down by the missile. I did mm. not know right. what happened in real life. I, kn- I didn't know anybody died during this thing. That was the only chap um, to die, wasn't never. it, I think? The only person, yeah? Yeah. I looked him up on um, on Wikipedia after I watched mm. the film, and uh, I guess his hometown has, like, a statue or, like, a memorial for him. Oh. He, in a way, like, I mean, helped prevent World War Three. you know? Mm. Right. Mm. Like, like, yeah. It could have been a moment they used that as justification for World War Three, and then, like, mm. somehow it ended up not happening, thankfully. But... Mm. Um, yeah, that's just one thing they overlook in our history here. Hmm. Providential, I would say. Providential, which is another little lesson, I think, perhaps. Uh, even though things can look really, really almost impossible, yes. something can happen to make things work out. So mm. I would say we need faith. <laughs> so mm. there we go. Have faith, um, folks. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, thanks ever so much for coming on. A complicated film to talk about, complicated bit of history. So thanks very much for watching it and contributing. Mm. Uh, it's been a good discussion. Um, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Another good entry in the canon. Thanks for coming on. Mm. And the next one is The Bed That Eats, isn't it? Yeah, so we'll... Yeah, yeah, we'll, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to be a double-length one because there's so much to say about that. <laughs> like a five-hour five hour podcast, I think, we should be going for. What about Eraserhead? I am tempted to do it. Oh, oh yeah. It's yeah. the strangest film ever, but... Uh, Any David Lynch. Frank, you up for Eraserhead? I love Eraserhead, yeah. So, so <laughs> in my opinion, that movie is the only movie to ever capture the feeling of a dream. Like, it's one of the few movies where it, like, actually yeah. has the logic of a dream. You know, that's the one movie that's actually captured the surrealness and mm-hmm. oddness of mm-hmm. uh, Mm. Would you say a nightmare, though, perhaps? Yeah, probably, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'd definitely be up for that. Yeah. The only problem I have with that is how do we make that consistent with the themes explored on TMR over the last 10 years? I mean, mm. obviously Batman fitted really well. <laughs> That's your job, Julian, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. Oh, I suppose I could say the film is possessed. <laughs> I've talked about possession. So. <laughs> with what? <laughs> Evil spirits. Oh, I thought fine, yes. Oh, yeah. THX 1138 was looted, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah it was. 1984. Yeah, I kind of want to do that. It's, uh, At some point. It's got to be done. It's a good film. Yes, since I've seen it. Fahrenheit 451 is another one you talked about. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Who's read the book? No, you have, though, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I've read the book two or three times, I think. Oh, yeah. wow. I must do that. Mm, That's a good one. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, this time. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Good. And The Sound of Music. Uh, I'll probably step away from You'll that be busy one. <laughs> no, I'll do it. Oh, have you not read the book, Mark? I've yeah. read the book, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, are you, are you into I, that one? I like Sound of Music. Yeah, it's I thought good. you jokingly suggested it, and then I watched it. I'm like, oh, it actually was pretty good. Yeah, this is the thing. This is a joke. It's kind of standing joke. But I agree. It's one of the best musicals I know. It was What's the TMR angle, though? How does it fit with TMR? <sighs> Nazis. <laughs> it's got Nazis in it. Well, it's, is it Switzerland? Austria. That's Austria, CERN. That's You've got CERN there. Oh, no. Now, we've talked about Nazis. That will fit. We talk about Nazis every New Year's Eve anyway. Yeah. <laughs> They're quite heavily invested in the jelly donut of the earth. That's right. That's right. 2001. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you reckon? Do you reckon there's enough mileage in that? Yeah. There's about 10 hours in that. <laughs> <laughs> We might do it. We could yeah. do it minute by minute, couldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, chaps, for coming on. Brilliant. No problem. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. All. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. 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 Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajkoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guests, Frank Johnson, Anthony Rotuno, and Mark Campbell. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.